0: First Fuel podcast on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, recording today on Wurundjeri Land. And uh, it's a special episode of First Fuel I'm bringing to you this week, uh, recorded at the Energy Efficiency Summit 2022, which uh, took place a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, in Sydney, Thursday, 6th of October, uh, an event convened by the Energy Efficiency Council along with the Australian Council of Social Service, uh, the Property Council of Australia, and the Australian Industry Group. Um, those four organisations came together to make a simple point that it is past time that we put energy efficiency at the heart. Of this energy transition that we're all working our way through, we had some outstanding keynotes. Uh, Peter Halliday, CEO of Siemens, uh, the California Energy Commissioner Andrew McAllister, gave us some insights into all the wonderful stuff that's happening in California. Uh, and of course, if you missed uh, last week's episode of First Fuel, you can catch up with that. And which I had an extended conversation with Andrew. He covered a lot of the same territory in his keynote. And then we heard from the Assistant Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Jenny McAllister, who used her keynote to underline the government's commitment to this space and uh, made the announcement that the Albanese Labor government will be pursuing a national energy performance strategy. So, uh, immediately following the Assistant Minister's address, uh, we pulled together a panel. Um, which included Andrew McAllister and Jenny McAllister, but also the CEO of the Property Council, Ken Morrison, uh, the CEO of AI Group, Innes Willocks, and the acting CEO of the Australian Council of Social Service, the wonderful Edwina MacDonald. was a great chat that started with me posing this question to Ken Morrison. So, uh, Ken, I might start with you. Um, and we've had... I think uh, from both uh, from Peter and, and also from uh, Andrew, sort of that, that sense of the global context and the way that um, energy efficiency has been seen as kind of a core to our uh, emissions reduction journey overseas. It kind of hasn't been grounded in that same way here in Australia. And I know that's something you're very passionate about, energy efficiency. We've got this newly minted 43% Target recently legislated in 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 an initial um, flag in the sand from the Albanese government about where where we're heading. Um, I was just wondering if you could unpack for us what the role of energy efficiency is in that that near-term goal in 2030 and also what what its role is going to be as we move forward to that that, that final target of net zero by 2050.
1: Yeah, thanks, Luke. Um, uh, delighted to. But first, I kind of just congratulate uh, Assistant Minister McAllister and the government for the commitment today. I think that's uh, tremendous that we've got a government that wants to focus on uh, the demand side, on energy efficiency, and that someone's been allocated to drive that work. So thank you very much for, for that. <laughs> uh, and looking forward to collaborating with you on that. The Yeah, it, 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 it's a no-brainer mm. that we have this focus on... The demand side, uh, you know, and I think the previous speakers have spoken about it very well in that, of course, if we're going to get to our net zero targets, we need to be able to decarbonise energy supply, but we also need to, to look for the, the, uh, the least cost abatement options and many of those on the demand side. Yep. Um, we, we also need to look at the, the benefits, you know, the, the, uh, Uh, the benefits to the economy as well. And one of the things we know is that this energy transition that's in front of Australia and the world is going to cost a lot of money. There's going to be a lot of investment that's going to go into energy distribution systems, um, uh, renewable energy forms. A lot of that money will come from private sources. Uh, A lot of that will also come from governments, both on budget and off budget. And if energy efficiency can make a difference in terms of avoiding some of that investment then that's a really important part of uh, the the economic transition as yep. well that's something that you know uh, uh, Jim Chalmers should be very interested in terms of how do you avoid some of these big bills that are that are coming government's way so I think whether you're looking at a and a, uh, an, a uh, from that net zero perspective or you're looking at the the uh, the dollar investment perspective it makes a lot of sense for it to be a big part of the future, and that's why it's really good we've got that commitment today. Yeah, and
0: Edwina, like there's that, that there's that cost lens which Ken's spoken so eloquently to, but then there's kind of lived experience of our most vulnerable. And what we often talk about is like there's a social licence to this transition, um, and we've got to bring the whole community along with us, and we've got to bring the most vulnerable along with us too. Can you maybe unpack what energy efficiency means at at the ground level of renters and vulnerable households around Australia?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'll just, I will just start by acknowledging we're on Gadigal country and I, I think that uh, in terms of climate change, we know that First Nations are, are impacted, um, you know, uh, uh, greatly by climate change and need to be, you know, part, very much part of the solution and central to the solution. Um, and, and I thank you, Assistant Minister, particularly for your commitment to collaboration and engagement. Um, it's certainly appreciated, I think, by all of us here and, and very much by the, the sector. Um, And and also particularly for the words that that you spoke about, that that in terms of people who are uh, on the lowest incomes or the most vulnerable, that they do experience energy stress disproportionately to others. Um, And it's really great to have that acknowledgement from the Assistant Minister uh, for Energy Efficiency um, or Focusing on Energy Efficiency. It's uh, certainly consistent with what we're hearing. We've just conducted a survey uh, of people on income support uh, to, to hear how they're coping or not coping, as the case is at the moment, with increasing costs of living. And it came out really strongly in that survey, just the impact that energy stress is having on people. Uh, so people have told us that currently about half of the people that we've surveyed are either currently in energy debt or expect to be in energy debt uh, when their next energy bill comes mm. in. And at the moment we're just coming out of a cold winter, so we're expecting those those bills aren't going to be good. But also it's in the context of, of people having already done all they can to reduce their um, energy use. So people are telling us they're doing things like uh, cutting down on showers, the number of showers that they're having. They're um, cutting down on lighting, on heating. They're going to bed early to stay warm. Um, they've changed the way they're cooking in order to reduce energy. So they're already trying to do all they can to reduce energy, but at the same time they're, they're in this extreme energy debt. And we know that it is impacting people's health uh, and well-being. Uh practically everyone we surveyed told us that they're currently that they're not having enough money to pay for basics like energy uh is impacting their health. Um people are telling us, and, and as you mentioned, that they people are giving up essentials. They can't afford all the essentials, so they're having to make choices. Um and an energy bill coming in is something that people um often need to prioritize paying. So people are, are skipping meals, they're skipping medicine, um either not taking the medicine or, or kind of stringing out the dosage to make it last longer. Um, we had one woman, for example, tell us that the fortnight that her energy bill comes in, she only buys bread and milk for that fortnight because that's all she can afford to buy in order to pay the bill. So we certainly know that this is really hitting hard in terms of what people can afford and, and then the flow on impact it has to their health. Uh, and the other other side of it that we know, which, which the Minister also spoke to, um, is, is that people on low incomes uh, are generally living in poorer quality housing and they've got less control over that housing, so they're not able to... Um, implement the energy efficiency um, approaches that, p- that people on higher incomes can do, you know, buying smarter appliances, um, you know, changing the house that you're living in in order to make it more energy efficient, or even just living in a more modern, more energy efficient house. And that this is having a flow-on effect also to people's health. So people um, are living in houses that are too damp, that are too cold, that are, too, you know, in winter, too hot in summer, um, they're experiencing health effects from that as well, respiratory illness, cardiovascular illness, mental health effects. And we know that living in too, you know, too hot and too cold houses is actually killing people as well. So we know that both the, the impact of not having enough money to pay for the energy bills hitting home and also uh, the impact of living in houses um, and homes that people can't um, afford to make more energy efficient uh, is also having this great impact on health. Um, And we we also know that that people are bearing this cost disproportionately, so people on lower incomes pay a higher percentage of their income, uh, four times actually of of their income compared to people on higher incomes. Um, So it's certainly impacting in all these different ways, and that's why we see it as so important in terms of having this energy efficiency strategy and the plan going forward and having the particular focus for people on low incomes, looking at at prioritising that, and I think there's there's agreement generally around that. to to prioritise that in order to uh, address the hardship, address the energy debt uh, for people on low incomes while at the same time addressing um, reducing emissions as well.
0: And and going to the the point we were discussing earlier around, you know, commercial buildings, we have frameworks in place, we have neighbours which we can back in and accelerate in the residential space, we don't have those same systems and processes in place. So we need to create an ecosystem, right, that can support, you know, upgrading all those millions of homes. And one of the ways we can do that is, is support... vulnerable households and upgrades in that, in that space, um, which helps create the ecosystem which the rest of the market can leverage. Um, it's been a tough year for vulnerable households. It's also been a tough year for business. Right? Um, so, you know, energy, energy costs, um, have been a very significant concern for business, particularly on gas, but across gas and electricity. Obviously, those ca- those costs on the gas side are flying through into electricity markets. Specifically on electricity in us, where do you, where does the demand side sit from your perspective and what role can it play to ensuring we get to a place for business, sees them having access to a secure, reliable and affordable supply of energy?
3: Uh, Thanks, Luke, and uh, thank you to everyone who's here. Special thanks to the McAllisters for their presentation. (laughs) Um, I I must say, uh, Andrew, uh, not much known about me, but I I spent three years in California as our Consul General in California uh, in the mid-2000s, and the reason I wanted to go there wasn't for the movie launches, although they were fun, <laughs> um, was and all the TV shows and everything else, um, was in part because it was our second biggest expat market, but in large part, it was because of the work that California was doing in policy at that time, um, particularly around climate policy with the Schwarzenegger administration. And uh, I sort of take my mind back to their decisions around vehicle emission reductions and the role of the Clean Air Board, it was Mary Nichols at the time, uh, and, the, and the Energy Commission, um, and it was really world-leading, and that was what excited me about going there in a, in a policy sense, and it, uh, my f- the third day in Los Angeles was up at Pepperdine University for the Schwarzenegger-Blair Climate Pact announcement. Mm-hmm. Now, stunning place, Pepperdine University, but... The point was that California has always been a leader in this space and it's great to see that still is, obviously, uh, and is sort of giving a lot of thought to how we uh, evolve as a, as a society and as a global community. So I just congratulate you uh, for that and uh, hopefully you can learn some things here. I think what happened in California at the time really did start to drive the climate debate here, for better or worse, uh, starting from about the 2007 election and its prelude to that because the world was moving and we are still, still moving. And uh, where, where we get to, I think we all know where we want to get to. And that's thanking you, Jenny, for the 43% emissions reduction target. Um, so it does give us a goal. This has, it, it is still tough for business. Mm-hmm. Emma was laying out households, the story for households. It's perhaps not that graphic in some terms that you can allude to, but you've got the, if you were to do a SWOT analysis, you have um, reliability at one side, you have demand at the other, mm. uh, you have uh, um, price uh, up up the top there that you have to work through, uh, and then you have you know, efficiency uh, as well to take into account. It. it You know, you look at the latest AEMO report on electricity and it tells us that we're failing just about on every reliability count, but hang on, we're we're building all these great new facilities and hydro dams and the like, so we'll get there, but hang on, wait again a minute, all that's going to take a long time, regulatory approvals, we might not get there. We know that work is going on and it's important that it does go on, but it's going to be bumpy and lumpy. Mm. Um, but in the meantime, sort of the ugly cousin in all of this debate is, the, is efficiency. Steady on, Ennis. Um <laughs> It's the forgotten child. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, it, it gets ignored at our peril because perhaps it isn't sexy mm. you know, uh, for businesses, but it is where businesses are now seeing that they can make enormous savings uh, and enormous gains uh, in that in that's sp- in the space of efficiency doing things better with what you've got or, or even reducing what you need. Um, there's two sides to the equation uh, a lot of the focus in the broader public debate and thinking has been uh, has been uh, around the supply side yep. More and more, we would say, has to now go as we work through what's happening on the supply side, has to go through and a lot of discussion conversation has to occur around what happens on the efficiency side, the demand side, so that we can manage both sides of the equation. It's been very much a one-sided public debate and in terms of business, broader economic thinking as well, it's been fairly one-sided. So the benefits of efficiency, demand side haven't really been uh, exploited yet and I think that's exciting because that's where the, there is now the potential to make a lot of gain mm. uh, through strong policy leadership and support because uh, it's not always going to be easy for business to make these uh, changes that they need to make but I think that's the, the, this is where maybe over the next decade or less as we're working our way through, uh, supply side that the the demand side is where we can really make some real real key structural. Uh, gains uh, across the community to benefit both industry and households.
0: And it's been a little bit of the theme as we've been working through. You've got the efficiency opportunity, so managing that load, and then in some industries, not all, but in some, particularly where you're dealing with low temperature process heat, you've also got that electrification yeah. opportunity mm-hmm. that we've been talking about Absolutely. on the way through, which allows you to pair, you know, um, you know, whether it's in food processes or other parts of e- industry, um, that that load with uh, renewable electricity. Supply. Um, Andrew, I might go to you because you sort of, you sort of mentioned the governance piece on the way through and it, you know, the California Energy Commission is, is almost unique around the world in kind of pairing demand side and supply side and then the, that regulatory role yeah. with, with buildings and with, with appliances. But I'm just fascinated by this forecast piece, you know, that, that key role you have sitting between the agencies of really properly characterizing the trade-offs, right? We can build Generation or networks, um, to X capacity, or we can sort of invest in demand side policies and thinking about, you know, how you get to that ultimate optimum outcome. How important has that been in terms of the efficiency, uh, achievement that you've been able to drive in California to date, but also just having that capacity moving forward to make those trade-offs as we sort of build, rebuild our energy system in real time, right?
4: Well, really, I have appreciated everyone's comments, um, and I think we're all pretty much singing from the same, hymn, you know, different pages from the same hymnal, which is which is really great. Um, so, uh, yeah, it ta- it does take a fair amount of resources, and that is relatively uncommon in in a state energy office in the U.S. You know, we're by far the largest state energy office, um, but the the benefit is that. You know, when we're making, when we're regulating, when we're doing the building code, which affects every building project, every new construction and and many, you know, um, building upgrades across the state, um, what we can justify as feasible and cost effective Mm -hmm. is based on the, you know, the the most uh, sort of, you know, the best uh, uh, um, sort of sum total benefit of, uh, of all the hours of the year, right? We do this 8760 um, calculation based on um, you know valuing peak hours at their sort of long run you know average average pushing to marginal cost um, over the next you know 20 30 years, and so so we're sort of future proofing the buildings by justifying more investment now or or, or different investment, not necessarily more um, in in every building project that happens today. Um, so that that building is actually going to perform well off into the future as we, you know, reach towards our goals. And so, um, and so, so there is a, you know, a crack analytical team behind the forecast. Um, I wanted to also just um, highlight, though, that one thing that I'm particularly sort of proud of, and I lean on, and I think it's it's um, maybe not totally unique to California, but I think um, it, it, it's worth pointing out. Our process is kind of our currency, you know, our brand is what it is. People trust what we put out there into the world because we have this consultative process, you know, and, and you're starting down this path here as well, which is just fantastic. You've got to listen, you know, everybody doesn't agree right at the outset. Mm. I mean, you know, hopefully nobody's carrying tomatoes here and, you know, but, uh, you know, I put, you know, proposals out there, my colleagues put proposals out there that are not popular. There are maybe a little bit misguided, you know, and, and so, the process allows us to have workshops and take public comment, put it all on the record, build a record, and then make decisions based on that record. And I think um, uh, and that creates an accountability that creates a brand of trust. And in my mind, that's what democracy is all about. I and mean, that, that process is, okay, we, we have a social goal we're moving towards. We have to do it in a way that's transparent and accountable. It, without you know, take, without de- defanging it, but you know, we've really got to be aggressive and muscular, we have deep authority. We're going to use that authority. But we really, um, I think, lean on the process. I think that's the lifeblood of, of uh, sort of the whole ecosystem is a, is, is a process that we can manage and be accountable. Um, and, that, and so if anybody is really unhappy and they're like sort of their inclination is to sue us or something like that, well, they look at the record and they're like, we, we're going to lose. So they don't. And so, you know, that's just the real politic. Is, is, it's an effective strategy. Uh, no, no tomato so far, but we haven't got the gas yet,
0: so we'll right. see how we go. <laughs> um, uh, Minister, you're embarking on this journey. We've just heard um, Andrew talk about how important it is to consult. But, but you've been reimmersing yourself in this space the last three or four months. What, what are the what are the big questions that sort of are unresolved for you as you embark in this process? What are the, what are you looking for from all of us, the stakeholders in this room, which you know, some came came across town on a very wet day, some came from all over Australia to be with us here today. What what are the What are the things that you're looking for? What are the big unresolved questions that you're really hoping to get some guidance on from this room and everybody listening in at home?
5: Mm, Thank you, Luke. Um, Look, I do come back to this after something of an absence. um, And looking around the room, there's a lot of people who have, for a very long time, been involved in climate and energy policy. So when I was last sort of um, taking on a job of this kind, you know, Al Gore had just received... uh, had just released his movie, An Inconvenient Truth. There was enormous community interest in what we were going to do about climate. Um, But in truth, the technology solutions were not well-developed. They were promising, but they were not well-developed and well-established. And uh, the business community was maybe not ready to engage, was anxious. The difference this time is that coming in, now, uh, within sort of a day or two of being sworn into the portfolio, um, Minister Bowen said, Oh, there's a meeting on this morning. I think she'd come to it. And sort of mm-hmm. in wandered uh, m- many of the characters on the platform. <laughs> um, and what became apparent to me was that I was operating in a different environment because, in fact, um, leading business organisations were collaborating with leading um, advocacy organisations to argue for a kind of change and that actually business was ready to lead um, and that government's job in a way was to enable, facilitate and catch up. It's a long way in, but I think the thing that would be useful for me over the course of this afternoon and in all of the subsequent engagements we have is to really bring focus to what it is that government might do to unlock some of the impediments that are in the way of businesses who are ready to do things um, and, of course, the things that you know are always going to require financial support, some of, as such as some of the challenges that you referred to, Edwina. But I think really thinking through where are the areas where business is ready to go, ready to act, but there's a regulatory impediment, there's an informational impediment, there's some kind of coordination problem that stops business investment or business action. Mm-hmm. These are some of the early things that we can get done and pro- and, and demonstrate proof of concept mm-hmm. um, in terms of energy efficiency and I'd be really interested to hear people's thinking about those things.
0: Mm. Well, one of the things that you, you mentioned in, uh, in your address was the National Energy Productivity ban, which I think we can, uh, we can now describe as dead, buried and cremated. We're in a new era <laughs> now. Um, uh, Rob Murray-Leach will probably be pretty pleased about that outcome. Um, but, it, uh, it did set a target. You, you made the point that it, um, it, it wasn't high enough. Um, I guess that's going to be a process that we work through in terms of what our aspirations should be. But I was interested maybe throwing to you, Edwina, on the topic of a target, because Andrew's raised it. You know, there's a, there's an ambitious car target in, in California. Um, which is, uh, uh, you know, driving a lot of hard thinking, right? About how, you know, the various opportunities around the state and what is already a very efficient economy. So, what role do you think a target could play and, and, you know, how, we sh- how should we be thinking about that in the context of your constituency of vulnerable households?
2: I mean, I think, I think you've, you've touched on it and Andrew did as well about the, I mean, both the transparency, but also, um, I think the transparency around having a shared goal and then there's a, a shared goal that we can all then collaborate and engage and work towards. And I guess the hope would be that, that having a target like that would be um, I guess a catalyst or a momentum for, for change to move forward um, amidst all this collaboration all the ideas. So we'd be using the target to do right. things like um, you know, we'd have clear actions and then we'd have clear deadlines, you know, nothing like a deadline, <laughs> yeah. clear deadlines but for, for delivering on those actions. We'd be able to drive strategic policy decisions and we'd be able to encourage um, investment as part of the, the target and the strategy that goes alongside it. Um, I think importantly, it would need to have funded policies and programs running alongside it to, to support, you know, how we're going to reach the target. Um, and from our perspective, we'd want to see some specific targets around what's happening for people in um, low-income mm-hmm. houses. Yep. Um, I think in terms of those funded um, policy um, ideas, I, I think for us the, the kind of priority continues to be making sure that we do um, put people on, in low-income um, housing first as part of that and, and to have a, a really concerted strategy around that. Um, and for us that's starting with um, you know, looking at energy efficient, uh, efficiency upgrades in low-income housing. So we're talking about social housing. Uh, private renters, also low-income homeowners, um, and seeing as, as that as a way to both meet um, reducing energy hardship and energy debt, which, you know, is addressing men, addressing poverty and inequality while also reducing emissions and building that supply chain, chain and workforce that can then um, go into rolling that out more broadly to other households. So that would be a key um, priority at the, the federal level, but it would also um, support those conversations at the state and territory level as well, and so we'd be looking for, for action at the state and territory level yep. as well to meet the targets. Uh, so things like having all states and territories uh, implementing um, the, the increase of the minimum efficiency standards in new builds that we've seen the, the joint uh, minister's decision on recently. Um, we'd be looking at uh, social housing being built to higher standards and looking at min- minimum energy efficiency standards across rental properties as well.
0: I think you make an incredible point, which is like you've got you've got a high-level cross-cutting target, but then actually breaking it down into what it means in particular sectors yeah. is incredibly important. I don't know, Ken, if you want to comment on that, or, or perhaps pick up the theme around around governance and energy market governance, which uh, which Andrew sort of intimated has been kind of a, a key enabler of an awful lot of ambitious policy over almost fifty years in California.
1: Yeah, well, a couple of things. You know, one is that there is an urgency around the policy making here because when we look at the the official forecast, we've got a sort of black box of uh, energy efficiency delivering um, uh, emissions reductions, but without really the policy drivers to achieve that. So you know, there is an urgency here if we're going to achieve those uh, 43% targets. Uh, the other thing is, yes, absolutely, um, you know, we've got those high-level targets which the government has now provided us with um so as we're embarking on this strategy on the demand side it'd be great that that if there was a target which translated through and and provide the same discipline um and, and focus to those things uh i think it is important you know when one of the things when we're talking about real estate uh and 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 property we're we're talking about a a really big opportunity we're talking about a sector which is responsible for about a quarter of Australia's emissions and about half of Australia's energy use. So the opportunity is, is significant, but the complexity is also quite significant because there are a lot of different actors. It's not just the very sophisticated organisations like Mervac, who's hosting us here today. It's literally everybody who lives or, or owns a dwelling. It's, it's every builder, every supplier in the food chain, an enormous amount of, of actors you've got to try to you know, move along the, the journey here. So you need incentives for the best players to continue to do great work. You need um, uh, the sticks, you need the regulation to be able to, you know, move up along the way, and you need the enablers. And, and you know, one of the things when you're looking at the residential sector is having that enabler. Um, so we've got Neighbours that does a great work. We've got Green Star does amazing work. You know, where's the residential equivalent of Neighbours? Um, there is good work which the the new government inherits, but it, you know it's a little bit. It feels like it feels like sort of a 1990s level of work. You know, it's uh, like the 90s. The music was great. You know, my knees could my knees could play five games of squash a week. It was fantastic. But you know, I don't know why we would design uh, a a uh, an energy or or a or a, a a framework for assessing energy efficiency for people who you know have Little time, little money to invest in that process. You know, let's use technology, as Andrew was saying, to really enable best of class outcomes here. You know, I think there's something really revolutionary that could be done with federal government leadership in partnership with the states and territories to enable great outcomes, good policy levers, but also a whole bunch of other incentives and uh, banks coming in and providing what they do in New Zealand, discount market loans for energy-efficient homes. Why Why wouldn't we use those levers? So there's some really big opportunities. Not all of them are in the carrots and sticks. The enablers are also important.
0: So there you go, Minister. Sir, Rob, uh, pre- I- put away the uh, pearl jam and break out the telescope.
4: <laughs> <square laughs> residential ratings. Can I just add one point Yeah, to this? sure. Because I think it's a really key point. So you've you got to take advantage of opportunities when when they come, right? And just And that's the nature of politics. But we just happen to have in California – a confluence of events this year where we had a big budget surplus yeah. um, we had um, uh, you know we, we're, we're really getting where the low hanging fruit is not really abundant anymore mm-hmm. and so some hard choices about where where to put our dollars you know and so we ended up uh, with uh, and, and it takes leadership in the legislature often there are individuals that are just really keen on these issues and they provide leadership and get legislation through that state you know, and federal level um, and so in our, in our case, we just had a raft of legislation mm. that altogether was a climate package worth about $30 billion and is largely the buildings piece of this, uh, which is significant, and the, and the, the, the vehicles uh, infrastructure, which all told is probably about $10 billion. Um, is, is all pretty much focused on, uh, much of it is focused on um, you know, under-resourced communities. Yep. Um, and so the the heavy, it's a, there's a common understanding now that we have to start by moving markets that serve the least among us and that serve the people that don't have the capital, you know, that are living hand to mouth, and really do, uh, you know, prove out that and then scale upward from there. And that's a little bit of a different, you know, program model than, say, the solar or other markets. And so I think, we, you know, it's a challenge, but it's also a humongous opportunity.
0: So, um, in a, let's let's get to the gas conversation. We had to get there. Who's the tomato? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know what I would note, and I know your uh, your colleague, Tenant Reader, uh, talks about this regularly, is that many of our energy market forecasts, GSU and the like, um, they project around 101 petajoules of gas savings, uh, demand reductions, I should say. Um, a bunch of that's electrification. I think about 90 petajoules, and then there's you know 11 petajoules of efficiency. And I should say that's by 2030. So this is, you know, we're talking eight years away, so this is quite a task. And let's just assume that this is going to turn up. I think um, some of our panel have suggested that, that there's a lot of assumptions baked in without necessarily the policy to deliver it. What does it mean for business for those gas savings to turn up or not to turn up over the next eight years?
3: Well, let's start with this proposition, is that gas is still for now crucial to our economy. There's no way of getting around that. It's crucial in the production of the building blocks of our economy, fertilisers for agriculture, um, steel, aluminium, bricks, paper, all of the core things that you want in an economy that makes things, gas is still crucial to that production. Now, those sectors themselves that I just alluded to and others who are gas-reliant are going through a transformation Mm. process uh, when it comes to energy and energy use and energy efficiency. Uh, that will take time. So we talk a lot about green steel, for instance. When I talk to um, InfraBuild and to BlueScope, they're working, they're peddling really hard on it, but that's still a decade, maybe two decades, away from really bearing fruition. Um, so gas is still going to be there. Now you talked about the 101 petajoules. Um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions built into this, um, and not all assumptions come true. Modelling is not modelling, to a is, on modelling is not a precise. Breaking news, ladies <laughs> um, I've often fa- found that you get a model out from what you put in, and yes. that's uh, that's largely it. Look, there's other things going on too. There's um, yeah, and There's Narrabri in New South Wales, which may or may not come to fruition, Santos, I think of 2026. I think they're talking about making a decision on Narrabri. That would be 50 petajoules. There's gas import terminals as well that we're looking at. I spent three years trying to get gas import terminals into California and failed dismally with BHP and Woodside. They're probably glad I've failed well, by now. But in Mexico, uh, yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, that, that, that's another component. Um, it makes a difference. Gas is still crucial. It's still important. We can't get away from it. But the point is, is that industry is working to get away from it. Yep. But it will take a long time. There's no flicking switches. There's no overnight solutions to not having, having it and, and being reliant on it, both from an industrial perspective, but also from a household perspective. Um, it, it takes, it will take a long time for us to walk away from it. And at the moment, there are just some things you just cannot do without gas. Um, but as we, as we work through this process, um, I think it's important, going, sort of weaving back into the previous conversation, that we don't penalise industries or businesses that have already taken steps for the steps that they have taken. Sure. Um, yeah, they're not penalised because they're not acting now. You know, They have started acting uh, in the past, so we have to be very careful about that. We also, to the point, also made the 43% target it's going to impact different areas of the economy in different ways. And we can't just throw a blanket over everything and say reduce your emissions by 43% overnight. That's the key point here.
0: Well, there's, a, there's an integrated conversation about thinking about the trade-offs and opportunities and challenges in various sectors. And one of our partners, um, uh, not here today, unfortunately, but our friend Andrew Richards from mm. the Energy Users Association yeah. of Australia, sort of thinking about the, the, the challenges around, around, around gas um, that we're, we're facing over the next uh, period of time, um, and I don't think he'd mind me saying this. Um, he was, he was actually quite bullish on the idea of electrification in the residential sector. Yeah. So to, to free up gas for the, for, the for the industrial sector yeah, because, yeah. you know, the technology in, some, in some, some elements of the industrial sector is still coming yeah. on online. So you've got to think about all this in an interconnected way.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's no silver bullets mm. in all of this, as we've discovered in the conversations over the past 15 years in Australia. There's no silver bullets. There's no overnight solutions. We know where we want to get to and the target is really crucial, but there are many ways to climb that mountain and we're still sort of crawling our way up and falling sometimes. Yeah. 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 So, look, um, we're almost out
0: of time. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a choose-your-own-adventure because uh, some of you are advocates and some of you have other positions with, with governments and government agencies. So um, you can either, um, very quickly, 30, 30, 40 seconds, give me your, your pitch if you're an advocate for what you'd like to see in a, in a new energy efficiency, uh, energy performance strategy, or indeed what you're excited about in terms of the energy efficiency conversation that we're going to be ramping up in this nation, I might—I'll
3: start with you, Innes, and then we'll, we'll go down the—we'll go down the line. Don't think. <laughs> the fact that we're having the conversation yep. is exciting. I mean, well, called said it was the ugly duckling or the problem child you look or whatever. Quite rude to me, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to be rude, but what I was trying to get across was that it has been neglected yes. as a solution, and the fact that we—and it's always been there as a solution—but um, it's been neglected in the public consciousness. And I think the point I'd make is a lot of businesses have done a lot. Yep and are continuing to do a lot. To Jenny's point, a lot of businesses were slow to the game, but now driven by investor demand, staff demand, customer demand, supply chain demand, this is front and centre of industry thinking uh, at the moment. So businesses like Peter's Siemens, where they do a lot of work in energy efficiency and others as well, you know, this is going to be an area where with the 43% target Locked in, what we've been talking about today is going to move from the sidelines, perhaps, of the debate to the centre. That's exciting. It that is exciting. Edwina,
2: look, I'm going to combine you two, because <laughs> my pitch and what I'm excited about Connect, right? right. And that, I mean, I've already, I think, spoke about the priority for us is energy efficiency upgrades in low-income homes. Yep. And I think we we know that you know that this will. Um, you know, require investment from government, but it is something that is good for for government to invest in. And this is where I get excited <laughs> because if we do approach this, we do apply the equity lens as we approach how we mm-hmm. address energy efficiency. We can, you know, we're, we're addressing just, you know, multiple things all at once. So we're address, addressing energy affordability and energy security. We're addressing poverty and inequality mm-hmm. um, and we're reducing emissions and we're addressing climate change. So this opportunity to to address, you know, this multitude of, of challenges um, within the, the one kind of policy area is very exciting. Good idea.
1: Yeah, I'll start with excitement as well. And I think the fact that we're having the conversation is exciting. That's great. Uh, we need to have the conversation and, and to what, uh, Minister said, what, uh, Senator McAllister said, uh, business is up for the conversation. Uh, and there's a lot of great leadership that's, that's already shown in Australia. So there's a lot of great learnings to learn from. But, you know, there's a lot of, lot of the, the, the property sector, for example, it needs to, uh continue to to embrace change here. So uh a lot of goodwill great that we're having a conversation. You know the pitch I, I think the pitch is that if you're thinking about you know the the real estate sector the uh and what needs to be done both existing housing existing commercial stock uh, and the and the new stuff there isn't a silver bullet. So actually you're going to need we're going to need a suite of measures mm-hmm. to drive change. Um, some of those measures can be driven out of the federal government and others will need the collaboration and support and the, and the drivers of state government. Uh, and, and so there's a uh, there's a really important uh, intergovernmental collaboration piece there, which always scares the hells out of uh, anyone who's actually got responsibility to put something <laughs> like that off. Uh, but it is very important. So I think fantastic, lots of great will, lots of energy, um, uh, but a lot of work to do. Had your thinking time, Minister? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do a combined, um, offer like Edwina. Huh. Uh, uh, so, my pitch really is for stable, consultative, um, and directional energy policy. The target, 43% by 2030, is a really important foundation for that kind of approach. Um, And it represents a change to where we've been without labouring that point. Uh, I think what I'm excited about is that notwithstanding all of the challenges of bringing together a kind of level of coordination on both the supply and demand side of the economy that really we haven't – of the energy system that we haven't seen before, there is an enormous amount of goodwill, business enthusiasm and, in fact, strong incentives for businesses to participate uh, across a range of um, vectors. And so I feel as though we are now in a position where we can work, really draw on the expertise and the enthusiasm of a lot of participants in the system uh, to to deliver some really good outcomes uh, for the people that Edwina cares about, but also for uh, the, the broader community into the energy system. So I feel very optimistic, and that's the thing I'm excited about.
4: Wonderful. Andrew, bring us on. Let's see. We have a real challenge ahead of us for the next, you know, to bridge to 2030. So I think, yeah. uh, you know, in the near term, we just we have, to have, we have to do everything, right? We've got to build do this massive build-out of clean energy, and then we also have to sort of keep our existing system reliable enough to, so, to sort of, uh, you know, get along until we really have that bridge. And so I think Australia and California are both in, in that... Um, in that, really basically in that same kind of milieu. Um, I think what we need is a, is a positive long-term vision, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the world at point B, where we're headed, is a much better world. Uh, it's, a, it's got clean air. It's got better equity. It's got wonderful indoor spaces. It's got great schools where kids can learn and not breathe crappy air. Uh, it's got just a lot of positive characteristics that will flow from the clean energy. It'll have better jobs, more sustainable jobs. Um, we didn't really talk much about the economic development piece of this, but it is absolutely mm-hmm. there. There are 250,000 clean energy jobs in California today, and yeah. we could quadruple that. Yeah. And so, uh, so I think the, the, the economy looks different. The air looks different, you know, and, and it's all better quality. 15 years, 20 years hence, when we've done all the things that we're talking about doing. And I think that's where, often with engineers and, you know, kind of policy wonks like us, we're not media people. We don't know how to sell this stuff. Well, well I guess with one exception here. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I think um, really we need to, to really embrace this long-term vision that's a positive vision um, and, and I, you know, I have to respectfully disagree. I think energy efficiency is incredibly sexy. You
2: know? <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thank but, you. Uh, I'll take
4: it. But, uh, <laughs> but we have to convince the world not necessarily of that, but of this broader. This broader set of qualities and characteristics.
0: There's a, there's a lot to do, right? There's a huge amount of effort to to get this done and get it done right. And we're not going to get it done and bring the community along with it with us if the the story is we're going to put this huge amount of effort in. And at the end, it's the the everything's going to be about the same as it is now, <laughs> exactly. right? The houses are going to be the same. Your businesses are going to be the same. No, we've got to have that positive vision, as you say. And I think there's some the building blocks shared by the panel this afternoon. It's been a great. Uh, start to the conversation that we're going to be uh, rolling through over the course of this afternoon. Ines, Edwina, Ken, JMAC, AMAC, thank you so much. <laughs> Round of applause for our panel. Well, there you go. As promised, just a, a cracking conversation with some genuine leaders in the space. Thanks to uh, Ines Willicks, uh, Ken Morrison, Edwina MacDonald. Uh, Assistant Minister Jenny McAllister and the California Energy Commissioner Andrew McAllister for their time, uh, for their generosity on the day, for their contribution to what was a really outstanding event. Now we want to make sure that as many people as possible have the opportunity to access uh, the insights generated by the summit. So uh, uh, we will be rolling out some of the other panels that uh, took place at the summit uh, in this podcast feed over coming weeks so stay tuned for that and if you'd like to see the video versions uh, of uh, the summit they're all up to view at your leisure at ec.org w forward slash summit 22 but in the meantime it's a goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon